Yes, good morning. Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard Dale. It's the 50th edition of the Movie Hour. It is indeed. So it's happy birthday to us. <laughs> Shall we have a little... Why yeah, not? Why not? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Louise. Well, I don't know Happy why. Birthday. I don't know what Louise has got to do with it, but it sounded a good idea at the time. Louise is our <laughs> secret producer who does all the work for <laughs> yes, us. Indeed. And we just come in and talk. <laughs> yes, that's right. Starting there with Madonna and four minutes, because, of course, the hype's over, the movie's out. Yes, Madge's WE is out, and I yes. have a lot to say about it. <laughs> right. Come, come about... Uh, Quarter two, we'll so talk we're, about uh, we're on tenterhooks. Yes, you right. are. Yes, so we'll start with the local film, shall we? Yes. And okay. uh, starting with the Mortings here in Annick. And the Mortings in Annick? You mean the Playhouse in Annick? Start with the Playhouse in Annick. After yes. uh, I won't, because they haven't got anything on according to this. So okay. let's start with the Mortings in Berwick, shall we? Yes. Yes, you can tell I wrote the script this week, can't you? <laughs> uh, uh, Monday evening, eight o'clock, it's Johnny English Reborn. Well, we both yes. have misgivings about it. I mean, it's clearly done well in terms of the target audience, but I just don't think it's yes. as funny as it needs to be. The week gets better. My week with Marilyn, Tuesday evening at eight. Well, you know, it's, it's decent costume drama fluff. It's loads of famous people playing loads of famous people kenneth Branagh's having a ball playing laurence olivier because there's a sort of ironic yeah. reason for him doing that and i know eddie remain has been nominated for a rising star award at the baftas i think um and i i think he's really good so go and check it out right Berwick film society on wednesday evening with wild targets um I'm, is that the original or the remake with emily blunt in I will give it a little click here and tell you um meanwhile thursday evening at is moneyball which i which I really like. It's a film about baseball, but it's not really about baseball. It's about statistics written by the same guy who did The Social Network. It's you know, good performances by Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, whom we'll come on to later when we talk about The Sitter. So, well targets. Jean Rochefort, Guillaume Depardieu, and Marie something. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the French original then. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay sort of charming, sweet film about assassins. The remake was quite sort of ropely done, but the original might be all right. Right. And then on Friday evening at seven o'clock, Twilight B-Dawn Part 1. Uh, Breaking Dawn. Yes. Even. Um, Twilight B-Day would be an interesting film. Um, yeah, I think it's flawed. I wanted more of the, the body horror David Cronenberg stuff, but I'm, no, I don't buy any of the criticism saying that this, that the series is, is evil or anything like that. I think that it's refreshing to see, you know, a mainstream film with a female heroine that's taking money. And, and it's then, clearly hitting its target audience. And next Saturday afternoon is Hugo. Yes, which is great. Great. Nothing on Annick Playhouse, of course, because it's the Annick pantomime. How could I have forgotten? Because I'm, I'm there on, uh, Thursday night stewarding and selling ice cream so I shouldn't have I shouldn't even have questioned what was on it in Annick yes. anyway on to the top 10 um, actually before we talk about the top 10 what about the Golden Globes well it is award season so the Golden Globes are traditionally seen as the, the, the first big award um, ceremony to kick it off and a lot of people see the Golden Globes as an indication of what's going to happen to the Oscars basically I take no notice of them whatsoever they have a habit of you no know, Basically, the, you have to look at the way that the awards are voted for. The BAFTA and uh, Oscars are voted for by you know, various sort of boards of people who are interested in filmmaking, yeah. in terms of actual filmmakers, directors, writers, actors, and so forth. The Golden Globes is voted for by the Foreign Press Association in Hollywood, which is essentially a bunch of third-rate journalists who think, 
who has given us the best party this year? Let's give them a nomination so we can hang out with them. I mean, last year when The Tourist was nominated, I mean, The Tourist, it's not an awful film, but it's a rubbish film and nowhere near awards-worthy. The only reason it got nominated was because they got to hang out with, you know, with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie. So, basically, the Golden Globes are utterly... Uh, stupid, and the fact that they've given an award to Madonna for a song called Masterpiece when her film is anything but kind of says it all. Right, lots of awards for the artist. It'll be interesting to see how that does in the rest yes, of the season. Yes, no, I think that the artist is going to do very well at the BAFTAs and the Oscars. I just think the Golden Globes are a bit pointless. Yeah, the more I see of the artist, the more I want to go see the whole thing. Actually. Well, we'll talk about it in a second because I saw it last week. Right, number 10 at the moment is Shame. Which is you know, the new film from Steve McQueen. I think it's a really interesting examination of addiction. I made the comparison between this and Requiem for a Dream, the Darren Aronofsky film, which is, which is also a similar line of, you know, it's not about drug addiction, it's about the nature of what what is a drug or what is an addict and no, very intense performances by Michael Fassbender and Kerry Mulligan and no, it, it's proof aside from anything else that you no, know, the artists can actually be pretty good filmmakers and I would actually compare this in terms of a cinematic effort to um, uh, the diving bell at the butterfly and know someone who you know, in the past had made essentially art installations on in, on celluloid and has actually turned out to be a pretty decent filmmaker. Right. 15th of February, if you want to see this Annick Playhouse. It is a matinee, as we discovered this week. An 18th certificate matinee? Oh, I oh, think... Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> 18th certificate stick matinee. With, stick with it. Stick yes. with it. Sorry. Yes. And if you uh, can't wait until the 15th of February, it's going to be on at the Maltings next Sunday afternoon as well. Puss in Boots, of yeah, course. Yeah, and you will be there. Which is not an 18th certificate. No, it isn't. And it's quite, you know, decent, jolly fun. I think the song, and I think, the, you know, the, the story is all over the place, but no, I like Antonio Banderas playing that character. And Christmas seems to be going on forever because Alvin and the Chipmunks is still in at number eight. Yeah. Chipwrecked. Yeah, I think the, the reason it's still in is there's not much else around for the very, very young audiences at the moment. I mean, Hugo didn't do anything like as well as it should have done. No, it falls into the trap that the later Shrek films did of sort of you no, know, trying to be sort of arch and playing to the adult audiences, and the songs are very poor. So right. it's a shame. Number seven, as we were saying, the artist, which I went to see last Sunday, and I really like. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage in the press about people demanding refunds because they didn't know it was a silent film. Well, read the adverts. Yes, exactly. I mean, certainly that never happened at the time side. It's bemusing partly because, you know, how do people pick their films, but also because there were times when I stopped noticing that it was a silent film, and I know it was in black and white, I know that it was in four by three, they actually shrunk the screen at yeah. the time side in a sort of dramatic fashion when the curtains went up. No, I, I really like all the nods to all the old films, you know, it is, the plot is essentially A Star Is Born meets The Jazz Singer meets Singing in the Rain, but I like all of those films, particularly The Jazz Singer, which sort of gets overlooked. It's actually yeah. got quite a plot to it and no i like how populous it is because it's a mainstream film about the ability of different artistic styles to coexist and you should go and see it yes and every time i see it i say i think it's i get really impressed yeah. and it's very very subtly done i think it's not perfect but it is a very very good piece of work number six uh, not exactly loved by the critics the darkest hour it, it is rubbish you know it's when I reviewed this last week, in the, the sort of 30 seconds we had left, you said it had a sort of 60s premise of invisible aliens coming, and it reminded me of that, um, that sequence in Red Dwarf 8, I think, where, um, they're, they're showing a sort of B-movie in the prison, and it's the, it's the, a B-movie costuming, Attack of the Giant, Unsightly, Completely Invisible Aliens. And, uh, it sort of reminded me of that note. It's an excuse to show special effects, the, the premise is half decent, but after the first 10 minutes, there's nothing in it. 
Next one, number five. Um, it says here on Rotten Tomatoes, brutal yet captivating, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Now, a stylish but ultimately perfunctory remake. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I dif indifferent I feel. You know, it's faithful to the story, and it's faithful to the original Swedish film in such a way that you think, you know, if you were going to remake it, why didn't you solve all the problems that were in the original? Because the original was a sort of television production and had a lot of nasty elements to it. There's the news that uh, the girl who played with fire probably isn't going to be helmed by David Fincher. So it's fine, but I, I don't know why you choose to see this over the original because they have exactly the same flaws. And number four, advert for a good haircut, Mission Impossible. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any great loyalty to the series, as I think <laughs> we said when we review this, although... No, like, rather more loyalty to the TV series but yes yes and the tv series is quite you no know, good solid tosh i mean it's it's not so much a film as tom cruise's pension plan i just hope that simon Pegg is just going to use his fee to fund his new film with Edgar Wright. right three great films as we move up though or controversial films at least sherlock holmes at number three a game of shadows which is pretty much as good as the first one no that was guy ritchie's best film it's longer and baggier and louder but it, you know all the stuff with robert downey jr and jude law is quite fun I think, you know, it's a very different interpretation to the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, yeah. and incidentally, the Reichenbach 4 was tremendous. Well, don't, don't tell me, because I was up at the Maltings in uh, Berwick last Sunday with uh, Berwick Broadcasting Corporation. We haven't watched the DVD yet. Yes, all I can say is, if you've seen Nick Rogue's performance, then you'll, you'll notice all the little touchstones, but if you haven't, you are in for a real treat. So yeah, Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, it's good fun. Don't expect it to be up there with the Stephen Moffat, Mark Gattis stuff, but it's good fun. Uh, number two, we had a long chat about that last week, listen to the podcast the Iron Lady. Yeah, we won't have quite such a long chat today. I mean, it does seem to have divided pretty much everyone, and no, it's from the director of Mamma Mia, Philip Lloyd, so you know you're not going to get the weightiest thing. There's been lots of people writing in about, no, well, the reason it's it's about because last week I said no if you're going to make a story about the loneliness of old age why do it about Margaret Thatcher and a lot of people have been saying well it's because they want to show that the Iron Lady thing was actually yeah. just a persona and actually she was as vulnerable as everyone else the fact remains you can't leave out all the politics and just focus on the person because no Thatcher was such a strong character that you can't subdivide them in that way yeah and finally my thanks to everybody at Contagious Youth for the worst joke of the week the Geordie film is a Dave goes through the the massive column of light and you see the, the shifting landscape yeah. and his eyes changing colour and yeah. uh, going into that sequence where he's reborn as a star child, which is held up as one of the the definitive hallucinogenic scenes in cinema and there's all sorts of stories about people dropping acid to go and see 2001, including Stephen King, who in one interview said that seeing the Stargate sequence on LSD was one of the reasons he let Stanley Kubrick make The Shining because he had such fond memories of yeah, that 12 incredible. years ago. Yeah, but once The Shining came out, he sort of reverse that judgment because Stephen King has very mixed opinions about Kubrick's efforts on that and that's why he made a TV series of its own. Um, so Trumbull admired Kubrick greatly. I mean, he called him a genius when he passed away in 1999 but what he wanted to use his newfound fame in special effects to make a science fiction film in his view that was actually about people rather than technology yeah. and the, the coldness and loneliness of space. So then we have Silent Running. Um, film on a budget of $1.1 million. Which so was cheap. Quite low. And it did quite well in continental Europe. I mean, when I looked on IMDb for the box office figures, it said it did rather well in Spain. Um, but it got a very middling reception the first time around. Vincent Camby, the legendary critic for the New York Times, uh, called it simple-minded. And if you get a bad word from Vincent Camby in that period, it meant your, your film was dead, basically. Um, now it's regarded, however, as highly influential. I mean, Joel Hodgson, um, who created Mystery Science Theatre 3000, that no, fantastic series in America, yeah. cited it as one of the big inspirations for the 
puppets. It's credited by the makers of Red Dwarf as an influence, and it's fitting that I sort of brought it up. Yeah, you could see that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. uh, you can also see that more more recently in things like Duncan Jones' Moon, and in particular Pixar's Wall-E, which we'll come on to later because there is a very close connection between those films. Um, Trumbull only directed one other film, however, which was a very odd little thing called Brainstorm in uh, 1983, where Christopher Walken plays a scientist who develops a machine that can record brain waves onto VHS tape and play them back to other people. And you know, he, he yeah. finds you know, recordings of someone you know, trying to find out what happens to the mind after you're dead and sort of you know, going into you know, heaven and so yeah. forth. And it, that is a very controversial film because it, because, um, it featured a performance by Natalie Wood, whom you might remember from West Side Story. Yeah. And she mysteriously drowned just before the filming ended oh, and there was sort of, you know, it, yeah. and the, the inquest into her death was actually recently reopened. I, I think the, the verdict was still the same of you no know, accidental drowning, yeah. but yeah, it sort of cast a veil over the whole thing. But, uh, so the plot of Silent Running is, it's set sometime in the future, they're not quite specific with the dates, uh, on the outskirts of Saturn, and it's at a time when all plant life on Earth is extinct. There's a line on it in it early on where he says, you know, wherever you go on Earth, it's 72 degrees. So, you know, it's roasting <laughs> hot, basically. We're not that far off that, are we? <laughs> yes, in terms of global warning and stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, so all plant life on the Earth is extinct. The last vestiges of plant and animal life are being housed in these giant geodesic domes on board a series of uh, giant spaceships, which, being a film of the 70s, is actually an American Airlines fleet. <laughs> That's how they <laughs> got the money. And uh, we follow the actions on board one of these ships called the Valley Forge, and you have four crew members, three of whom are sort of completely carefree and apathetic, but one of them, called Freeman Lowell, who's played by Bruce Dern, uh, is sort of, you know, very eco-friendly and he cares about the forest and he goes around almost in like a monk's habit tending to the plants and you know, stroking little bunny rabbits and all yeah. that sort of thing. Um, they receive word from Earth that the project of the Valley Forge, their funding has been cut, <laughs> how appropriate it is, and uh, that the domes, therefore, are basically going to be blasted into space and destroyed and they're going to try and you know, repopulate the Earth in some other way. Um, Bruce Dern doesn't like this, and he actually kills his other three crewmates, takes the ship off through the rings of Saturn, basically trying to avoid the authorities, while taking care of the, of the domes that are left with the help yeah. of three little droids called Huey, Dewey, and Louie. <laughs> Lovely. So, we were trying to scratch our brains about whether or not you would have seen this first time. I don't around. remember it, I yeah, must admit. Yeah, because I think I would have seen it first on late-night TV. And it's it's sort of a perennial in the yeah. same way as Logan's Run was actually on film four recently. It's one of those things that will sort of turn up at half eleven, and you know, you if you have an interest in science fiction, you'll stay up to watch it. But otherwise, you might think, well, yeah. actually, no. Um, it's long been fashionable for film reviewers, myself included, to slag off films for being sentimental. And I want to make it absolutely clear that the problem is not so much. The notion of sentimentality in and of itself. I mean, no, it's the, no, the expression of having a good cry. Yeah. But it's a question of the context and the manner in which it is implied. I mean, there's lots of people who criticise Steven Spielberg for being sentimental, which is simultaneously very appropriate and very foolish. It's appropriate when it's, you know, something like Schindler's List, in which the sentimentality cheapens what could be a very dark, interesting story. Mm -hmm. But when you've got a story like E.T., which is about sort of coping with divorce and coming, you know, yeah. resurrection, it's actually quite appropriate to sort of yeah. well up a bit. You know, if you show eight-year-olds E.T., they will blub their eyes out in a good way. 
Um, and Silent Running's reputation has suffered from a similar stigma. You know, the idea, you know, a grown-up 70s science fiction film with, you know, serious themes about, you no know, environmentalism and the human spirit and so forth cannot concede to something as feeble as human emotion. I mean, that started with 2001. Then you get Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris, you know, that three-hour yeah. Russian epic, which is very cold, very clinical, very distant, but it works brilliantly. But... Although that sort of cold, distant approach worked for Kubrick and Tovkovsky because they are, in the end, films about humanity rather than yeah. people, Silent Running is still a very fine piece of work which proves that you can have sentimentality and substance hand in hand. I mean, in comparison with 2001, Trumbull basically said that he wanted to make a film in which the most human characters were not apes and a computer, which, you know, if, uh, that's obviously true for 2001. I, mean, I think Kubrick deliberately cast the actor playing Dave because he had no immediate charisma. I mean, he was yeah. still a very good actor. I can't remember his name. I think he's Canadian. But, uh, no. The idea of having someone who just looked universal and therefore slightly blank. Yeah. Whereas, so whilst Kubrick's film focuses on the notion of mankind, no, Trumbull wants to look at individuals and where Kubrick is more interested in the insignificance of mankind in the wide escape of the universe counterpointed with their godlike potential in the sense of the encounter with extraterrestrials. Trumbull is actually saying, no, in the face of insignificance, disinterest and despair, you know, where you've got a situation where people don't care what they eat anymore, they don't care that there's no life left on the earth because they're just up in space putting on weight and enjoying themselves. Actually, there is a great thread in human nature for compassion and actually, you know, going against the grain to do what is right, and I think it does that very well. I mean, if you wanted to be as cold and calculating as Hal, you could effectively look at Silent Running and say, oh, it's just hippies in space. <laughs> and there is, there yeah. are certain aspects of that which do, yeah. to, I mean, it, partly it's the context in which it was made, because it was shot through mid-1971, and you know, the late 60s, early 70s, when you know, hippie culture was in its death throes, so you were bound to sort of get little elements hanging yeah. around, and of course, if you've seen the young ones, they didn't entirely go away, no. even by the early 1980s. Um, so you have those sorts of connotations, and it is undoubtedly true that Bruce Dern's character does conform to our very cynical stereotype of what a hippie is. And you know, he's got long, lanky hair, very loose-fitting clothing, a sort of drawling delivery, and say, man, you don't realise about the forests, and that sort of thing. I've only just been to Lagomera, it's still the same out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the obsession with nature, which many people would consider unhealthy, but yeah, Lagomera, exactly. Um, the problem with the film, in, from that point of view, is its questionable attitude towards the place of mankind and individual freedom in relation to preserving or promoting nature. I mean, there's that typical hippie thing about the ambivalence towards technology, you know, saying, you know, all technology is evil, I want a monastic existence where I can just sort of grow my own food. Yeah. Okay, so yes, yeah, so what's powering the lights to keep the plants going? What's What's powering the oxygen that keeps you breathing, why are you still moving in space? He, he doesn't entirely resolve that. More questionably is the fact that he acts, the film seems to argue that it's alright to kill people who don't agree with you if it saves the plants, which is a position that... That was your certificate. Yes. yes. Well, yeah, and it's, it doesn't exactly come out and say it straight on, Yeah, but... It's one for the adults. Out of the con outside of the context yeah. of you know, the 60s, when that sort of argument might have held slightly more currency, that is a big problem which the film doesn't yeah. address. I mean, it's not, you do, obviously, because it's a use certificate, you don't see Bruce Dern sort of hacking them to death <laughs> or anything like that. They just sort of, they get trapped in one of the yeah. domes, which then gets sent off into space and blown up. So it's, yeah. a, you don't see them die, but no. it's, there's no doubt that they have been killed. And, no, and Dern does have a very intense screen presence, which would lead you to think that actually he's slightly screwed up. Mm. And 
No, you mean you could say no. The film's making a point of no. This is how far you have to go in in favour of your principles. But it's like, you, you, there are different ways of doing it other than murdering people. But if you put that to the back of your mind, if it's possible to put murder out of the equation, <laughs> Silent Running's ecological theme about sort of caring for nature actually emerges as more than just a simple choice between yeah. sort of nature and man or man and a machine. And actually, it's not so much a film about ecology as a film about harmony. It's you know how the march of progress has made humanity so dependent on technology that they take everything for granted and don't know what real life is anymore. I mean, no, it's the standard of living of Dern's colleagues in terms of, you no know, what they can eat, how they can amuse themselves, all the time they've got to kill is such that they basically don't care about yeah. anyone other than themselves. I mean, whereas Dern, in the opening sequences, sort of caring for the food and sort of peeling potatoes or you know, the, the 22nd century equivalent of potatoes and sort of going around with the rabbits. They're running around the cargo bay and scooting around on these sort of mini go-karts, just yeah. be basically behaving like spoiled children. I mean, there is a philosophical background to this in the sense that, you know, are you familiar with the works of John Ruskin, um, the mm. 19th century philosopher who wrote Unto This Last? No. A very famous um, 19th century American philosopher who basically wrote about warning about the pursuit of progress and mechanization yeah. for its own sake. I mean, there's a tradition of stretching back to the Luddites when, who would sort of go around smashing yes. the spinning jennies and when the factories first started. Or you look at someone like Henry David Thoreau who wrote that novel Walden about a man who is rejected by the intellectual community and bends, yeah. he spends his life living in the woods. But it's that whole thing of Dern is the Arcadian among the lackadaisical industrialists. Now, his colleagues are the ones who are saying, oh, it's all fantastic, you know, we can, you know, who needs to go back to Earth? Who needs to eat real food? Who needs yeah. to drink real water? Because we've got all this. And Dern's saying, well, actually, no, what's the point of life if we can't sort of do this for ourselves and there's nothing to it? I mentioned Wally in the build-up to this, you know, the Pixar film from 2008. Have you seen Wally? No. Yeah, you really should. It's, oh, right. It's terrific. Um, it was compared to Silent Running by many of its critics when um, it was released three years ago, and I think Wally actually got nominated for Best Picture, certainly Best Animated Film. And there is an obvious parallel in the sense, you know, there is a role of robots turn tending to the earth, or what is left of it, and the loneliness of the occupation, both practically and philosophically. And like um, Wally, the character, because, you know, in Wally, it's a, it's a little service droid going around basically packaging up all the garbage on the abandoned earth and then he gets yeah. taken up to space where all the humans are, are living and because they've been in zero gravity so long, everyone's got fat because their bones have just completely withered away. Um, so you have basically, you know, the characters going against the grain to do what they think is right and because they've been on their own for so long, they develop little eccentricities. I mean, in the case of Wally, it's his, it's his desire to watch old video recordings of Hello Dolly on a little <laughs> sort of six-inch screen. And with Dern, it's his desire to teach all the droids how to play yeah. poker, and he kind of has an argument with him. You've just thrown away a five-card trick. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> I think Wally is the better film, that not by much. I mean, although it's one of the longer Pixar efforts, it's much more tightly structured than Silent yeah. Running, which, you know, it has, it has sections which feel needlessly slow, and I think that you can put that down to... Trumbull's direction is actually quite good in the sense that he no, he sticks to the theme and he doesn't sort of sell out or anything like that. The thing I would put it down to is the involvement at a script level of Michael Cimino, Michael Cimino who directed The Deer Hunter and yeah. Heaven's Gate, about which I have very, very strong views. Um, this was his first screenwriting effort in Hollywood. I mean, he'd later get a screenwriting effort, I think, on Magnum Force, which got him his first directorial yeah. gig uh, on Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And it's the same thing with, with all of Cimino's works. It's long not in principle but just to show how fantastic i am and it's that same sort of thing of i'm going to focus on this so long that it will become important whereas you just sit there thinking 
I get the message. I got the message about 10 minutes ago. Can you please move <laughs> yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go on a rant about Heaven's Gate, although it is one of the worst films ever made. Uh, but yeah. Uh, there are parts of Silent Running as well which have dated a little badly. I mean, we talked about this in a little bit with Lady Hawk and the Andrew Powell soundtrack, which yes. was a bit jarring. Um, in this case, you've got a soundtrack by Peter Shickley, which has stood the test of time quite well. But in the middle of that, you've got um, some two original songs by Joan Baez. And she has that sort of very warbling vibrato voice, which is a very Marmite experience. But you know, it's in the Yeah, uh, I'm a great fan, so I'm. Yeah, uh, that's I'm, fine. I'm the, uh, the happy side of Marmite. Yes, I quite like. I think you no, know, in small doses, she's quite good. And some of the dialogue is preachy. You know, Dern basically going over the same arguments over and over and over again to the point of exhaustion. But to be fair on Dern and Trumbull, it is very difficult to sustain a story where you've got very few locations and very few characters without the luxury of either multiple versions of the characters, which you get in Duncan Jones' Moon, or lengthy dream sequences like in Solaris. Because yeah. if you, if you have, say at the start, there are dream sequences in this film, you can basically do anything you like. I mean, obviously it has to make sense, but yeah. you, know, you can, you can be expansive. One aspect that hasn't dated, however, is the special effects. Um, when Trumbull was interviewed by Mark Kermode recently for the Blu-ray release, he commented that organic miniature or optical effects, stuff that actually involves physical props, dates a lot better than CG visuals because they are, in his words, photorealistically impressive. In other words, they, they have a, a weight and a tactility that is immediately um, perceptible. There's a wonderful photo... Um, that has been doing the rounds on the internet about uh, George Lucas then and now, where there's a shot of him in 1983 on the filming of Return of the Jedi, standing behind miles and miles of props, a lot of them created yeah. by Trumbull actually, because he was involved in Star Wars, and then it cuts to George Lucas in 2005 standing in front of a green screen, mm -hmm. and you think, yeah, how things have changed. And all the external shots of the Valley Forge are shot with a very good perspective so that you don't look at it and think, that's the model shot. That's Thunderbirds. Yeah. And again, I don't have a problem with Thunderbirds, but there are bits in Thunderbirds which look a little bit cheap, um, in a good way. And when you have, particularly when you have the explosions with the Valley Forge's domes being blown up, it it doesn't look like one of those CGI explosions yeah. where there's so much flame that it can't possibly be that. And bear in mind, of course, this is this is you no know, flame in space where there's no yeah. oxygen at all, so you wouldn't really get an explosion. And of course, you no, know, it does make the the departure from 2001 in the sense that you can actually hear what's going on in space, whereas in 2001 everything's eerily quiet, yeah. and that's the way it would be. The most illuminating special effect, however, is um, how Dern, sorry, how Trumbull creates the three drones. Like I say, you have these three little robots called Huey, Dewey, and Louie, which sort of hobble along on two feet and have these little, little mouths that sort of bark from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sweet. The way he created that was that um, he had double amputees, people who had, had, who had lost both of their legs, walking on their hands and then basically built the, the prop and the costume around them. And he Gosh. was inspired to do that by yeah. um, Todd Browning's Freaks, that sort of very controversial film from the early 30s, which had basically he rounded up every circus sideshow he could find and put them on a film and sort yeah. of tried to construct a story around them. And, you know, your standard things like, like the bearded lady and the 20-foot man yeah. and that sort of thing. And um, because the drones have got a very because their structure has got a very clear facial makeup in the sense that you can see the mouth and you can see the eye and they've got a little arm that extends and sort of, you know, pats Dern on the head <laughs> when he's feeling down or sort of hands yeah. him stuff or can play cards. You do sort of find yourself emoting with it. I mean, your head is saying it's a machine, I shouldn't care. But because they look humanish and because the movement is very 
humanly realistic because it is a person inside, you, you find yourself bonding with them. Did you ever used to watch the TV series of Buck Rogers? No, I think I was a bit too young for Buck Oh, Rogers. he had a lovely little drone. <laughs> and, uh, yes, who you, you fell in love with. Yes. I mean, it's, and I can't remember the name of it, so anybody wants to text it in, well, you otherwise I'm going to be Googling away you, during you the next song. You look it up during the next yeah. song. I mean, it's, uh, what makes Silent Running ultimately remarkable is that very thing. It is the emotional pull that you have towards it. I mean, the tactility of the special effects, the honest nature of the script, even if it's occasionally too earnest, and the tender nature of the final act when it emerges that, you no. Know, all the stuff that he's done is going to catch up with him and eventually he may have to sacrifice himself. It does the same thing that E.T. does, in that you feel like you've earned the right to blub your eyes out because of how well written the characters are and how much you've enjoyed their company. The comparison I would make is actually, in terms of, in one sense, is with The Man Who Fell to Earth, which, you know, check the back podcast because it's yeah. one of the first films I review with Paul, which The Man Who Fell to Earth has got a lot of things wrong with it in terms of very loosely structured, very incoherent, lots of stuff in it that's indulgent. No, we don't need the scene of Candy Clark urinating. It just doesn't make sense. But because there's such an emotional weight behind the characters in The Man Who Fell to Earth, you're more willing to forgive all its faults yeah. and just go in the moment. And no, both films are actually quite profound. So to sum up, it's an underrated and underappreciated science fiction film. I think that, no, it's not without its flaws, narrative or otherwise, and certainly taken... It has to take a backseat to 2001 in terms of its execution and the level of ambition. But what it lacks in awe and spectacle, it does make up for just sheer intelligent heartbreak. I think Wally's slightly better than it, but it's compelling viewing nonetheless. Sounds fun. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Yeah, a bit of Joan Bays there, and the Knights, they drove Old Dixie, and she was the uh, singist in uh, Silent Running. Yes, yes, she was. And next week, from the sublime to the... Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, from 1994. Should be great. Yes. I'm yes. really looking forward to that. Yes, uh, yes. Did you um, watch any Strictly Come Dancing this season? No, I, I didn't. And uh, Jason Donovan's little uh, homage to his um, stage... Um, uh, rendition of, uh, oh, of, course, of Priscilla because he, he was in the original stage run, wasn't yes, he? Yes, yes. Yeah, no, and I didn't is, see that. Uh, it was absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it will be good. Uh, Guy <laughs> Pearce, weaving, and General Zod in drag. Right. What did you want? Uh, where shall we start? Um, let's start with um, Haywire. Shall Why we? not? Um, new film from Steven Soderbergh, who is you know most recently made Contagion, which was that all-star uh, cast film about you know, a deadly virus and panic sweeping the yeah. world, um, featuring um, Marion Cotillard. Uh, also did the remake of Solaris, so it kind of fits in what we were yeah. talking about earlier. And Quite a cast list for this one. Yes, and it's a typical Soderbergh thing on that. He has claimed in several sources that after, I think he's got one more film to make and then he'll be taking a sabbatical from film to take up painting for a few years and then come back. He wants to go and reinvent himself. So basically this is his version of a Bond movie. You have um, no, Gina Carano, who is a martial arts star. This is her first screen role. She's a freelance covert operative who is double-crossed uh, in uh, during a mission in Dublin uh, has to go on the run to protect her family and take revenge on those who betrayed her. So a very well-worn spy thriller plot. An American name she's got Mallory Kane. Yes, exactly. Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> Long lost great granddaughter. <laughs> I've always had a problem with Steven Soderbergh and I've, no, I've struggled to understand exactly what his appeal is. I mean, I, I think his early work has promised. I mean, Sex, Lives and Videotape, his first film, is a very interesting indie film yeah. but ever since Erin Brockovich for which Julia Roberts won the best actress Oscar he's sort of fallen into the trap of making guest list films films with very ordinary plots yeah but 
just you know, padded out with big stars. No, essentially what he does is he takes a very well-worn story, usually some kind of heist or thriller or sci-fi setup. I mean, you look at the Ocean series, for instance, you know, because the first Ocean's Eleven is based upon a Rat Pack hit from the early 60s, which is all over the place in its original incarnation. And he makes a couple of tiny tweaks to make it seem as if it's original, shoves in a bunch of famous people to disguise how generic it is and hope for the best. In its favour, Gina Carano is pretty convincing in her first screen role, and the fight sequences are a lot more real and painful than we've become used to from the Bond series. I mean, I don't think it's up there with the Bond series in terms of realistic fighting, but, it, you know, there's, there is real pain involved. The problem is that it's just a bit more generic than it wants to admit, and there is a sense of it... A sense of Soderbergh making films so quickly that he's not really trying as hard as he needs to. So, mixed opinions. Well... A few weeks since we had a vampire film, Kate Beckinsale. Critics don't like this one, do they? It's called... What is it called? Underworld Awakening. And that's it, yes. Uh, yes, yeah, the fourth film in the Underworld series starring, uh, as you say, Kate Beckinsale and produced by her husband, Len Wiseman. That kind of gives some inclination of why they keep bringing these films back. You know, so, you know I can't ask you to run around in a rubber cat suit at home, but would you mind doing it on screen? <laughs> Um, so this instalment is directed by Mans Merland and Bjorn Stein, who directed Shelter with uh, Julianne Moore and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. And uh, it's the same setup as before in a vampires versus werewolves with bad CGI. This time, uh, Kate Beckinsale's character, who's a vampire, a vampiress called uh, Selina, uh, no, the ass-kicking vampire, she's been captured and tortured by evil humans uh, who basically find out that, about the existence of vampires and werewolves and want to wipe them out. And she has, you know, she gets brought out of cryogenic suspension and has to go and fight and there's lots of big battles. Um, Paul Young of this parish um, has a bit of a fondness for the Underworld series as a guilty pleasure. You know, <laughs> and there is something enjoyable on the level of seeing Kate Beckinsale running around in latex with guns or Michael Sheen <laughs> running around with his shirt off because he does look pretty good. But beyond that, you know, beyond the sort of the late night oogling, there's not much to it. I mean, the, the story is all over the place in the sense that it is sort of get from one battle yeah. to the next. And the 3D is pointless. They still haven't worked out how to do the CGI properly on the werewolves, which also played the Twilight films, incidentally. So, like I say, for late-night TV, it could just about pass the muster, but otherwise it's quite dull. Right. Jay Edgar's next. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, you know the one. Leonardo and, uh, <laughs> and Judy Dench. Yes, and it's the new film from Clint Eastwood, who has been a little up and down recently. Um, yeah. His uh, last couple of films, his Invictus, which was about the Rugby World Cup in South Africa, I really enjoyed. Yeah. I had Matt Damon doing, I think, one of the best South African screen accents. You know, certainly a lot better than Richard Roxburgh's yeah. in Mission Impossible 2. Um, but his most recent film, Hereafter, which also starred Matt Damon, didn't get very widely seen, wasn't highly regarded. Um, so it's a biopic of J. Edgar Hoover, who is the founder of the FBI and its longest-serving head. And he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio in a performance of changing hair, wigs, and lots and lots of makeup. And uh, it shows him basically growing up being smothered by his mother, who's played by Judi Dench, and uh, working yeah. out all his obsessions. And it does examine the myths about him being either gay or a cross-dresser or, you know, yeah. you know, some people even thought he was a transsexual, which I, I think there's less evidence for that, but even so... Um, I like Clint Eastwood as a director because he is unfussy. I mean, he, he famously said when he went into, into directing, every bit, every style of direction that he didn't like taking as an actor, he wouldn't do as a direction. So it's very yeah. sort of unfussy. There's no slack. He just lets the material direct it. He directs it in a way that he feels best serves the material. In this case, however, it feels so 
balanced and so careful about the material that it borders on the worthy and boring. I mean, you look at something like Steven Spielberg's Munich. Nobody yeah. could ever accuse Steven Spielberg of coming down buyers either in favor of, you know, the, the Israelis or the Palestinians. But there's only so much sort of mm, you can yeah. do before you have to start coming down on something to make it dramatically interesting. On the one hand, it's an interesting character to take on. I mean, it's a pivotal figure in U.S. history who had enormous amounts of power and went Indeed. way above and beyond yes. the law. And it does the fairly standard psychological examination of the character saying, you know, basically it was all because of his mother. And there's that yeah. sequence, there's a sequence where Leonardo DiCaprio puts on his mother's old clothes in a sort of Norman Bates moment because <laughs> Yeah. On the other hand, it, it does feel a bit stodgy and awfully worthy. I mean, DiCaprio is very convincing, but he's he's hampered by all the makeup in the older scenes. I mean, there's a sequence of J. Edgar Hoover as an old man where he's like, it's like um, going back to Red Dwarf. You know that, that episode where Dave Lister gets space mumps and he's got this massive lump on his head and then it explodes full of pus yeah. everywhere. It looks a bit like that but with just like a receding hairline on top. So it's workmanlike, you no know, sort of long and baggy, not as or not awful but just not quite as compelling as it should be. Next one, this hasn't gone down well with the critics either, but I guess it wasn't made for them. The Sitter. New film by David Gordon Green, who started out well with George Washington, but has since gone downhill with Pineapple Express and Your Highness. And the story is Jonah Hill, who was in Moneyball not so long ago, uh, is a college student who has been suspended and lives with his mum. They have a bit of a tiff, which ends up having to him having to babysit three children, when what he really wants to do is go out and have parties and score with women and get loads of drugs. Yes. So Porky's Animal House. You Super know that bad, yes. Yes, exactly. So first off, not original or interesting. I mean, at least with Porky's, there was that horrid little thrill about just how putrid and disgusting it was of, you can't get away with this. Oh, you just have. That's really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas, no, this territory has now been ploughed so deeply that there's nothing funny or shocking about it. Secondly, the, the actual gags are poorly executed. There is an extended fart gag which goes on for about four <laughs> minutes in a car. Uh, the situational comedy is very poor. Everything is painted in strokes so broad you think the script was written with a roller brush. And thirdly, and most painfully, it's just an example of a star and a director squandering their talent. I mean, Jonah Hill was very good in Moneyball, and you thought, well, he's moved on from all those sort of terrible comedies, but actually this is the stuff he really wants to do. And David Gordon Green has just thrown away... I mean, there was a time when he was doing George Washington that he was being compared to Terence Malick, and now he would be lucky if he gets mentioned within 100 miles of that name. Right. Hopefully rather better is uh, Coriolanus. Lovely to see Vanessa Redgrave back on screen. Absolutely, and this is the film of the week. It's and she does films so much better than politics. <laughs> even if I... Even if I agreed with her political views, yes. I still think she uh, does films better than politics. There's that wonderful joke about um, when Michael Caine used to go to the Savoy to eat uh, with Noel Coward every, yeah. uh, every uh, Friday. Vanessa Redgrave was doing the sit-down demonstrations outside the, the American Embassy and she came into the Savoy one night and Vanessa Redgrave was, Redgrave was about six foot one. <coughs> and um, Michael Caine came to the it's Vanessa Redgrave over there. And Noel Coward turned around and said, yes, she's very tall. It's a good job she's a communist, gives her lots of opportunity to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So this is the directorial debut by Ray Fiennes, whom I think is great. It's an adaptation of the Shakespeare play which has been abridged by John Logan, who wrote the screenplay for Gladiator, so a good start. It's set in Rome, in inverted commas, which is a, a city in the war-torn Balkans. Fine plays the title role of a great soldier who returns to Rome after a great victory in the war. He's asked to become a politician and rule in peacetime, but he can't do it because he has contempt for the masses and contempt for politicians, so he gets banished from the city, becomes an outcast, puts together a, a band of soldiers to vow revenge, and everyone meets a sticky end because it's a Shakespearean tragedy. And if you know Shakespearean tragedy, basically they all die. Yeah. That's how it works. 
it's really good. I mean, Fiennes has done the thing that all great Shakespearean adaptations have done, which is to get to the nub of why the text is important or relevant. And that is true of, that's true of modern adaptations. I mean, you look at Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet or yeah. Kenneth Branagh's four-hour Hamlet, which is, no, I say four-hour in a way which might suggest a tough <laughs> putting, but actually it's terrific. And the to yeah. be or not to be speech in Branagh's Hamlet is just menacing as anything. Yeah. But then yeah. you look at, you know, in the same way as more traditional versions like Polanski's Macbeth or the, the trilogy of films that Laurence Olivier directed, you know, Richard III, Henry V, yeah. and Hamlet, they all got into the nub of their subject matter, and that's why they were. And then there's numerous chestnuts about it, you know, which have topical themes in terms of, you know, is the kind of personality needed to defend democracy necessarily the one that is right to lead a state, which is yeah. very pertinent considering what's going on with the Arab Spring at the moment. And it looks at the instability of government, it looks at the corrupting role of family in power, you know, the Vanessa Redgrave yeah. is playing Coriolanus's mum and doing a fantastic job of it. Great performances across the cast, including the first genuinely good performance from Gerard Butler, which is enough to recommend it in and of itself. So, film of the week, I think I think it's either a 15 or an 18, and you know, being a story of revenge, if you know something like Titus Hydronicus, it's very bloody, but, it's but if you're old enough to see it, it's really great. Right. Okay, and finally... Madge. Yes, W.E., new film by Madonna, who will be known in acting circles for things like Vita and Body of Evidence or her terrible cameo in Die Another Day. So did she learn anything from her husband? Um, well, the thing... The ironic, husband rather. Well, the ironic thing is that Guy Ritchie has become a better filmmaker since he divorced her. <laughs> so <laughs> make of that what you will. I mean, she made her directorial debut with the unfunny comedy called Filth and Wisdom, which had a soundtrack by Gogol Bordello. And on this occasion, it's a film set in two time periods. So on the one hand, you have the relationship between the former Edward VIII, played by James Darcy, and Wallace Simpson, played by... <laughs> Excuse me. Andrea Riseborough. I'll cut that sneeze out of the podcast. <laughs> uh, Andrea Riseborough, who was in Brighton Rock. And then, so it's, it's the post-King's speech, Edward VIII and so yeah. forth, because they're living in exile. And on the other hand, you have a section set in the 90s where a woman called Wally Winthrop, played by Abby Cornish, is having marital problems of her own. She falls for a Russian security guard who actually turns out to be a very sensitive academic as, yes. as things happen. It's already attracted pretty awful reviews, and Mark Kermode has called it one of the worst he's ever seen, and that takes a lot considering some of the films that he's seen. And Madonna actually had to recut the film after it was booed out of the Venice Film Festival. Gosh. Um, some of the criticism does seem to have centred around Madonna's past record, saying, oh, she was a rubbish actress, therefore she's going to be a rubbish director, but they are completely different skills. Unfortunately for Madonna, it is true that it is... I mean, I'm not for kicking anything when it's down, but it is absolutely dreadful. Massive problems, which I'll sort of canter through very quickly because we've only got three minutes. First of all, the split time frame doesn't work. I mean, it's trying to draw the parallel between the conflicted lives of the yeah. two women, but the links are completely tenuous. I mean, at least with something like Sarah's Key, there was a genuine desire to see how the relationships in the past and present connected were, and in this case, we just don't care. Secondly, it's the naked celebration of materialism. It has no sense of perspective whatsoever about you know, what wealth or struggle is. Yeah. You know, it's someone moaning about having to pay $10,000 more for a pair of gloves than they wanted to. I mean, the thing that made the King's Speech work was it showed the relevance of royal problems to the common man, whereas this has a view of royalty which looks like the video of a material girl. It's just a naked celebration yeah. of wealth, and uh, everything's fantastic. Everything's parties. Then you've got the political problems. It, you know, it's basically saying, oh, actually, there are very nice, warm, lovable people 
completely overlooking or failing to address the fact that they were Nazi sympathizers, which is very widely documented. You know, there's been lots of stuff written about Wallace Simpson meeting Hitler and yep. actually getting on with him quite well. And he doesn't have the guts to sort of depict the royal people getting it on. So whenever there is a moment in the film where Wallace and Edward get intimate, it immediately cuts to Abby Cornish wandering around in her underwear. And you just think, no, just yeah. stick with one story. The screenplay is absolutely risible. I mean, Madonna co-wrote the screenplay with the guy who directed her Truth or Dare documentary, which you know, is saying a lot, and has lines in it like, you have no idea how hard it is to live out the greatest romance of the century, and just... Oh. Yes. It's, you know, it's shot horribly. No, there's a, there's a horrible sequence in it which doesn't belong at all, where it's set in the 30th section of the, of, the, uh, of the film, where everyone dances around to the Sex Pistols pretty vacant for no apparent reason, <laughs> which just, just makes you convinced. Yeah. No, Madonna, if you want to make a series of pop videos, make a series of pop videos, but get out of my cinema. But worst of all, worse than all of those things, it is horribly self-serving. I mean, Madonna has... She has denied this in interviews, but she clearly sees a parallel between herself and Wallace Simpson in terms of, you know, an American who's kind of coming into a male-dominated environment and having success. It is a film that was clearly made to feed her own ego because she's made a film which is obsessed with the culture of celebrity and the desire to be famous, which if you take Madonna's Material Girl seriously is actually what she wanted all along. So it's self-serving, it's horribly made, it's narcissistic, it's preening, it's stupid, it's vacuous, it's boring, it's politically inept. If it's not the very worst first film of the year, I will be very, very surprised. Apart from that, you quite liked it. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from all that, it was fine. Right. So we've got a few moments before we, uh, we go out to the news. So look back on 50 uh, movie hours. What have been the, the memorable uh, cult films? Well... Flash Gordon always comes back to me because of all the... Uh, and it was great. It was great, all the fantastic stuff we had with that. I think, you know, things like The Magic Christian, where we had Lewis on the programme, and sort of doing the thing of how strange could it get before you had to interrupt me, and uh, trying to summarise the plot of A Lucky Man in the space of a minute, which was impossible. There's been lots of good times. And I the Transformers rant. Yes, and I, I, wonder, I have a sneaking suspicion that that WE rant might become the successor to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. No, I think we'll ever quite get to the Transformers oh, one. I've disappointed you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, well. So, um, just before we go out, film of the week is Coriolanus. If, you, if you're not old enough to see Coriolanus, I would see um, probably J. Edgar, because I don't think Haywire is that good. Okay. Well, from us, have a very good week, and we shall see you um, next Saturday. I'll be on between 8 and 10. Danny will be joining me between 10 and 11. To do Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yes, and before that, are you here next week? Yep, one till uh, three. Right, okay. On the Thursday. Okay. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.